This is Making It Up, a weekly cultured news podcast focused on analyzing and debating anything that comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up and then two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one by myself. We pick our topics from the Macon Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to work our way to some sort of conclusion, often working through thoughts and challenges along the way. Let's talk about the things that we've published since last Thursday. We did a special episode, so we didn't talk about the stories. Did you do some research on this? Did I do research on what? As in what stories we didn't talk about on the previous Making It Up? <laughs> I did not. But I am oh. fairly confident that we did not talk about Hiroki. And the reason why I bring this up is because this is take two, right? This is like take three. This is well, take, this is a 10. proper take two because we went all the way into like 10 minutes of take one. Anyways, what did we publish in the last few days? So definitely the big one. I mean, we published some pretty great stuff if I can just pat ourselves on the back, or at least to say that people should look at it. But the one that has definitely gotten a lot of attention is Eye of the Beholder, a long form written piece by David Kenji Chang about Hiroki Nakamura, the founder of VizVim. The photos for this are also really good, shot by Justin Chung. Plus there's a video produced by Murat Shia and don't know if I'll get his last name right, Ben Bertucci and The New School. Yeah. And then after that, what else did we put up? Immediately after that, we did a piece on Wilson, which is a podcast magazine-like app produced by Alan Yu. The interview was done by yourself. And then the first of a new series called From the Portfolio wait, wait, wait. of- Let's not forget Colin Hughes's amazing photography. Ah, yes. I, th- I think these two back-to-back stories, like the Visvim one, and then the Alan Yu Wilson one were amazing, like super on point. In terms of visuals, yes. Got to give it up to Justin Chung and Colin Hughes. We have long standing relationships with and have been really great to work with. I have with. to say it's a privilege to be able to work with those guys. Oh, just like it's definitely it's something unique when, and this is me kind of giving them a glowing review, but when you can really just hand someone an opportunity or a task or whatever and you can, with reasonable certainty, expect something amazing that'll blow your mind. I think that's something that's pretty incredible mm-hmm. to have the ability to work with those people and also to have a relationship with someone like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and the relationship could be personal, but it also could be like, hey, you see eye to eye on what is great work, right? Yeah, I think there's a lot of mutual trust. We are very hands off when it comes to at least these two photographers, but many of our photographers that we work with were quite hands off because. Like you said, we really do trust their decisions and it usually comes back better than I could have directed or either of us could have directed. So after the Wilson piece, which was a written piece as well, we did the first of a new series called From the Portfolio Of, which is essentially like sights and sounds, but for people who create all kinds of things. So sights and sounds is one of our oldest, maybe the oldest making series where we speak to photographers and photographers talk about a selection of photos and kind of give the whole context around how that photo was shot and the situation in which they were taking that. So we applied that concept, but to people who make all kinds of art. 
So the first person we spoke to who sent in actually his recordings is Guillaume Ferrand. And what really impressed me about Ferrand is not just that his work is good, but his work is very thoughtful. And it definitely added more to hear his voice talking about his research, the ways in which he tried something and it didn't work. And then he tried something else. I don't know if every illustrator is like that. Maybe they are. And we just haven't been talking to them correctly to find out the ways they think about their work. And then after that, you put out an editor's letter, which that seemed to do really well. That seemed to do really well. I mean, I'm always surprised because I haven't really hid this process. Well, you actually, you summed it up best. It's like, what's something that Eugene thought about in the last 48 hours or week? And that becomes the catalyst of the editor's letter because it somehow relates back into something either personal or making related, right? Just yeah. personal discovery, where you are in your life. I don't ever really want to be that serious so much as, hey, you know what? This is the way I think about certain things. I'm not some self-help guru or some no. life coach so much as that. I think a lot of people share similar thoughts, but it's also helpful to have someone just crystallize it a certain way. Like I'm sure you've read stuff where, oh, I've thought about this a lot, but you've put it in a way that makes it very easy to to understand. Well, what's funny about the editor's letter is, yes, it captures your mind in a specific moment, but you never seem to have to really dig for something that's serious. It is genuinely the thing that's been on your mind recently, which says something about the kind of person you are. I guess we're not secretive about our process. I also like the editor's letter because Nate, Alec, and myself do a lot of editing on that. Yeah, totally. You know what? Lately, this is is interesting because I don't really consider myself a very strong writer. I think I can generally communicate a thought or idea, but I don't have that elegance that I think... David Kenji Chang. Kind of separates people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't have that elegance, nor do I find that to be a strength I want to develop. But... (laughs) The reason why is that I think that I write in a very formulaic, not poetic, not artistic way. And that's just my style. It's almost reflective of who I am as a person. But to that point, I've had people kind of ask me to write stuff. And I'm like, in retrospect, totally could have written that because I can do the research. I can consolidate all the ideas, create the structure. But the thing that always prevented me from taking it on was, well, I don't feel comfortable delivering anything as is, which made me realize even professional writers have editors. If I was to get commissioned or something, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll totally take it on, knowing I have an amazing team behind me that I could just lean on. Especially probably books. They go through this entire process of yeah. being edited. There are famous stories of authors who wouldn't be who they are. Uh, most notably, probably Raymond Carver and Gordon Lish. I feel a little bit more at ease because I remember someone sent over a request or wanted me to do something I'm like, oh, I definitely can't do it. It's everything that arrives at the final piece that I always feel a little bit uncomfortable with. So it's almost like that imposter syndrome, but then it's a reassessment of what that is because I think that writing traditionally is seen maybe as a singular job, but I think it really does come down to a lot of different people that are having some sort of effect on it. Sometimes I just lose sight of those things. I would say that writing is more collaborative than photography or videography because writing really does require having a second set of eyes look at something. Yeah. You have to know. For understanding. It's so hard to see a piece of writing from a reader's perspective after you've been in it. And somehow like a photo, you can get a grasp of that sensation better. 
maybe just the nature of the medium, but yeah. writing, you can't replicate the first time reading through something. And then the other piece we put up was the magical world of Frank Ape, spreading positivity and equality in New York City. So this was a full-fledged production by Chris MacArthur, who did the text interview and the photos. And I have to really give it up to him because this was in some ways like an unsolicited, he's like, oh, he just went out and did it. Totally and unsolicited. As a final piece. Chris is someone that I've been interacting with a little bit. And it's funny because he connected by emailing us first, right? But some of his previous work was in Canada and kind of in the bushes of Canada. And I was like, oh, this is something I identify with, whether it was apple pickers, I think in British Columbia or people working up in Fort McMurray, which for those unfamiliar, it's just like this very blue collar town that really is just known for its oil. That was probably quite a few months ago. And then this came back. What I really like about this story is first and foremost, I got put onto somebody that I was unfamiliar with, Frank Ape. Well, Frank Ape secondly, is a character created by Brandon Sines. So also just yes, wanted to mention the you. artist's name. And it's just kind of cool because I wasn't familiar about this, but then the underlying message behind it was pretty positive and invigorating. It's like, hey, this is a dude that was getting into a lot of trouble and made the decision to change his life. Yeah. And wanted a character to represent his feelings. Yeah. So true though, that if you have a surrogate speak for you, you can suddenly say different kinds of things. And I know mm -hmm. it sounds childish, but using a puppet can be really therapeutic. I don't know what happens, but I was watching the Mr. Rogers documentary, you know, Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. I was watching that documentary on the flight, I think from LA back to London. And they talk about the same thing, this idea that that little bit of removal from your mouth to someone else's mouth enables you to be braver in some way or to just have this filter that allows you to approach things from a slightly different I mean, perspective. It's, it's really no different from being anonymous on the internet. I don't know. I think it is. A troll. I think it's different. It is, it's like having a persona. It's not being anonymous. It's having a, pen a name. Yes. Kind of like that. I mean, I think people get the idea. You know, Frank Ape is this Sasquatch-like character. And then if you think of Fred Rogers, those are actual puppets. It's that concept. It is cool that we got to publish a story about that, about an artist who used that to express himself yeah. more positively. So my topic today is inside the booming business of background music. And this is a story that was published in The Guardian. The underlying premise behind it, I mean, the subject kind of gives it away. It talks about the business and the science, a little bit of science. I would say more so the business and purpose behind creating positive background music mm, I don't know. I don't think it's... Um, yes. Okay. Some of them are positive, but not positive in the sense that everything makes you happy. It's more well, like the background music has to fit. I would disagree because in general, don't you think that a lot of the applications are really to enhance something? And generally speaking, in the consumer retail concept that a lot of these things are applied to, they do come down to being in a certain mood to do XYZ, whether it's do more in terms of spending, do more in terms of physical performance. So I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Right. Is that I wouldn't necessarily use the words happy or positive because 
it's more about finding music that's appropriate to the situation. Like you Got should it. feel okay. positive. You should feel I'll positive that. in that experience. The music doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I feel so cheerful and excited about my life. That's not necessarily the effect. I'll concede that. You win. Okay. You win on that. Continue. Actually, the article's quite long, longer than I thought it needed to be. Starts off with this guy named Rob Wood, who is the creative director and founder behind Music Concierge. So Music Concierge chooses background music for a lot of brands, including Harvey Nichols, Mulberry, and Tottenham Hotspurs, which is a football club in the English Premier League. It's actually less about creating music. It's more about the curation of music to achieve a certain goal. And in the case of Spurs, the football club, it was about enhancing psychological and physical well-being. And prior to that, they also hired the 2004-founded company Mood Media, who supplies music to over 560,000 locations globally, including KFC. What's interesting is that ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to take some of the physical essence and intangible qualities of a brand and distill it into a musical experience. So I think that actually it's quite easy to understand. And they also talk a little bit about background music as a business, which began the 1920s through George Owen Squire, who's a former U.S. Army officer who got his doctorate in electrical engineering. He launched Wired Music, but then changed it to Muzak as an homage to Kodak. This was really interesting to me. Yeah. Originally, the goal behind background music was increased productivity. And one of their studies from 1956 suggested that an 18.6% increase in production and a 37% decrease in errors made took place at the Mississippi Power and Light Company. But it actually sounds Uh, awful because the original version of Muzak was instrumental classical recordings played in 15 minute sequences alternated with silence and the music increases in intensity. So I'm imagining that and I can't picture myself being more productive in that environment. 15 minutes is quite short. I would notice those silences and notice the volume increasing. Yeah. And also in the realm of background music, it's had to keep up with technology, ranging from proprietary cartridges made by 3M to multi-deck players, vinyl, and obviously the digital era of music, which has made it a lot more simple and straightforward to create super specific filters. So it's almost like the process of picking music that fits a certain type of requirement is a lot easier. Yeah. And then where this article goes next is to really talk about how technology has changed what background music is, right? Which I think is something we've discussed at length. One thing, yeah, I think is interesting is just the way music discovery happens today and in the face of algorithms, what role does human curation play in this Because obviously, if you're someone who has a business around creating sonic experiences, you want to find a way to prove that you are required and Spotify's algorithm or playlist will not be as effective as you are. Well, it's definitely interesting to make an argument as well for experts because there's several layers, right? Like you can say there's still a role for humans to choose music over algorithms like Spotify or Apple Music. And then you have to argue there's a role for humans like Rob Wood, who specifically tailor music for situations. And it's fighting against this idea that everyone is an expert, right? Which is something that we see happen when technology enables people to do the things that previously only professionals could do. The reason why I picked this was because I've seen the audio and sound world heat up immensely and it feels as though it's the next frontier for brands to explore Mm -hmm. 
The one thing is that I think it'll always be a little bit more challenging because audio, since it's not something that you see right away, it's just a different experience, right? It's not something that you can immediately put your finger on. What I'm trying to get at is that when it comes to music and audio, I almost feel the, the level of intimacy and understanding of something is something that needs to be taken into consideration a lot more than if it's creating something visual. Yeah, I mean, I think just the nature of background music plays into this because it's meant to be subconscious. You go into a restaurant and in the back of your head, you will register whether the music is appropriate for that restaurant, but you don't go in and immediately think, oh, it's this artist or it's this tempo. You know, people don't consciously register those things the same way they might go into a restaurant and consider this menu is a really nice paper stock. I like the logo of the restaurant name. Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. think people have exactly those same kinds of conversations, but maybe they will in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that's interesting because I'm not a big music person, as you know, but I do like to think about the role music plays. And it is interesting because since music is one of those things, it's arguably the one thing that is easy to transport people to different places in a very effortless manner. So what I mean by that is like, let me clarify those thoughts. If I go into a restaurant in Hong Kong, I can be put onto music that might be from Morocco. Whereas like, I think it's a little bit more difficult to create that experience and integrate that into something a little bit more authentic. So I think that finding a way to bring people to different worlds and knowing that since music is something that goes beyond language, I think that's really powerful. For example, when I'm in a restaurant, how do you communicate a different culture visually? It doesn't really make sense. Like, I mean, they could have photos, but if you're a Japanese restaurant, you know, having photos of Morocco doesn't necessarily make sense, right? Yeah. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of explaining that. Well, okay. So I think something that is global that people will understand is high-end department stores, which is also mentioned in this piece. So think Lane Crawford or Barney's or Harvey Nichols. And they care a lot about their kind of branding and identity. But sitting here right now, I could not possibly describe to you what one of their department stores sounds like. I know that there is music in every part of that department store, but I have no recollection. However, if I went there, I would be able to feel that that was part of being there. The thing that I thought was interesting is they don't really touch a lot upon original music creation. It's really just about selection and curation. I just don't think it's realistic because they talk about needing to make playlists that are thousands of songs. No, you're right. You're right. But I guess what I was trying to say is that in terms of a branding perspective, what is the counterweight between having your own original music at certain moments? I'm just making this up, but like, let's say the cash register is your own sound. Yeah, yeah, sure. The curation of sound. Right. Well, that's talking about audio in a different way. It's kind of mind blowing that, I mean, there are some numbers in this article that are interesting. Like playlists can be between a thousand and 8,000 songs. And they also talk about like the cost that they charge clients for their music. So it does show that people value it in a monetary way. But what you're talking about is interesting to think about, not even music, but do things like doors make certain sounds? 
within a mm-hmm. certain environment or the bell to ring a waiter in certain restaurants. Like in Japan, they have chimes, right? You know what's one thing that's often not highlighted is I think package design has its own audio experience that's considered. Definitely. Like when you open a new iPhone box, like that sort of suction sound, I'm pretty sure that's considered. Yeah, I think so. Or you know how department stores will wrap things with paper. That's part of it too. That rustling when you unpack something. Yeah. This is a less fancy high-end example, but Ichiran in Hong Kong and in Japan or wherever there's an Ichiran, when you add noodles, there's a certain- People unfamiliar. There's a certain sound. Do you know Ichiran? Yeah, that is actually, now that you mentioned it, I do definitely recall that sound. Yeah, because it's- It's so long. It's long, right? But I can remember it. That's kind of crazy. I used to go quite a bit. Also, something I was thinking about is even if we might not notice when music is appropriate, we definitely know when it's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. Like if you went to some kind of high-end restaurant and then they were playing teenage pop songs or like a boy band song, that might yeah. register to you. This is something I experienced a lot when I first came to Hong Kong. It'd be like a very, very strong disconnection between the type of music played and the type of clothing sold in the store. So it'd be like Snoop Dogg and it would be selling, for lack of a better term, contemporary Asian fast fashion that was at a time when that world of hip hop was just not as big. Some 90s hip hop, some gangster rap. And it'd be selling like super fitted clothing. That's all I got from my end. Anything else you want to add to that? I was wondering if you had anything to comment on whether the common person is going to become increasingly expert in music creation. I don't think so. I don't think it's tangible enough. No? No, I don't think so. And I also don't think that it is thrust upon us the same way as other parts of our lives. Because, for example, it's a little bit easier for you to be more of an expert at, let's say, photography, assessing what's good photography. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can't recreate good photography or whatever you deem good photography to be in your eyes. But I think that this is just above and beyond because it's creative direction and understanding brands beyond a superficial level? Mm, I guess the word expert is questionable, but I do think about how Hong Kong doesn't have this feature, but Instagram in other countries has a feature where you can add songs from iTunes to your IG stories. So that's a good point. people People are making increasingly frequent music and visual or music and situational selections. Whether those are good or not is subjective, but I think it's the frequency or that becoming a part of people's lives that might increase us being attuned to it. Exactly how Instagram made us more attuned to the way photos are edited. Yeah. I mean, my pushback would be, I do not see that feature used all that often. But you're also in a country where it doesn't exist. No, no. I've seen it before where it's like, oh, can't play music due to regional restriction. Okay, we'll see. I think that it's just like, since it's not meant to be in your face and it's not a direct interaction, it's challenging for people to get good at it. I would say it's definitely more challenging than visuals. Yeah. And then scent is one challenge further that I don't think, like we talked about fragrances in an earlier episode.
My subject today is based off of an article published in the New York Times called, Are You Ready for the Nano Influencers? And what it is, is talking about influencers on an even smaller scale. So people with as few as 1,000 followers on Instagram, between 1,000 and 5,000, and who are willing to advertise products on social media pretty much for free, just like for the products and possibly commission. The brands mentioned are legitimate brands. Like they're not some sort of strange out of your garage produced product. They are companies that are finding the usual strategies over these last couple of years of hiring influencers with millions and tens of thousands of followers is not really working anymore. That is on a decline. And I think we did publish this in the briefing as well. The issue with Lucas Sabat, who is this 20-year-old fashion model and was sued by Snap Inc. for not fulfilling the terms of his agreement in terms of being an influencer for Snap Spectacles. So now agencies, this is also kind of strange. I knew that these existed, but I'm also wrapping my head around the fact that there are agencies that are just about finding influencers. So agencies that solely deal in influencer marketing. And these agencies are reaching out to increasingly more micro nano sized influencers who are just super regular people. They're not aspiring models, photographers, anyone. They have occupations of all types and just happen Mm -hmm. to be what this article calls really good at social media. Yeah. Which was a term that I also question how you deem someone to be really good at social media. I mean, they're creating great engaging content. I wonder what they mean by engagement because the article says that too. The article says these people have high engagement, lots of likes and comments. I don't like the skill being good at social media. I feel like aren't there other skills that lead to that? No, I think they're mutually exclusive. Like I could be a great trainer, but I take mediocre photos for Instagram. But guess what I'm trying to say is can't it be... I'm good at photography and good at writing. But I guess when you say good at social media, you're talking about a combination of all of these things, mm-hmm. plus like an understanding of the product. Yeah. So it's just kind of mind baffling to me that this is like a skill set. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In our current age, you can say good at social media the same way you would say someone is good at photography. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. Do you think that utilizing nano influencers is more about branding or it's about distribution? And what I mean by that is, are you utilizing distribution in the sense that because they have more engagement and because they generally know their followers a bit better or the chance of interaction is higher, that is where the value comes in versus the actual branding? Yeah, I think it is distribution. I think more than when branding, you work right? with- Whereas like on the flip side- you're probably using bigger influencers for the branding nature. Right, exactly. Because these nano influencers, they don't have an established name. The company is not gaining something by linking themselves to that specific name. They're gaining something by being able to reach that person's audience. Yeah. Hopefully reach that person's audience. But that was also, that was another question I have as well. Maybe I'm too idealistic, but I feel as a regular person, you kind of have this, unspoken social contract with your friends who follow you. And part of that contract is I'm not going to become an advertiser. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And part of me thinks that when you enter into an agreement with a company to become an advertiser, you're like breaking this unspoken agreement with your friends and followers. 
Mm-hmm. So what I find interesting is that the economy of influencers, whether you have a positive or negative opinion of it, it's kind of beyond the point. It's just that we've seen they've continued to move downstream, right? You obviously have big influencers that will always be around, like, you know, over 100,000, 500,000. The a Kim million Kardashians followers. of the world. That is one realm that will always be preserved because you just have so much yeah. mainstream visibility. But before the nano influencer is the micro influencer, right? <laughs> yes. So something necessitated <laughs> the need for you to push downstream uh, even further. So I'm laughing so, because it's like the same words we use for SD cards. Yeah. So having said that, what's Sorry. interesting is that as an industry, like if you're someone in the middle, your ability to make a business or just generate some side income from this is is being eroded because you don't have enough scale to be in the mainstream periphery, yeah. but you also are too big and maybe too expensive to justify a company working with you. So yes. that's why it's almost as though they'd rather just kind of use the shotgun method of hitting a ton of these other people versus being a little bit more precise. Cause it's kind of like, yeah, I hate to use gun references. It's weird because, you know, I'm just thinking it from the perspective of like video games, mm. you know, looking at it from that perspective, it's like, you. Have I mean, we also, we have, also say target audiences. So yeah. that's kind of I a guess shooting like, metaphor. The thing that I was thinking about was playing Call of Duty, right? And you can be different type of Oh my goodness. This uh, is such a specific reference, but okay. Um, no, I That's get what it. I, was thinking of. I get it. So I think what you're saying is that the people who fall in the middle need to differentiate themselves somehow. They're going to either need to lower their prices or come up with more compelling, compelling point of differentiation. That's all it comes down to. They have to make a more compelling argument as to why a micro-influencer, I don't know, with tens of thousands of followers is more effective than someone with a thousand, which is a hard argument to make because for an agency, it definitely is way more cost-effective to find 20 people with 5,000 followers. Yeah. You're neither here nor there. This is actually an interesting thing because I've been thinking about extremities a lot because this is what it basically comes down to right the extremities of being a nano influencer versus being a super celebrity why do we always need to operate on the extremities and maybe it's just because there's so much stuff thrown at us that the extremities are what allow us to make a very quick binary decision yeah when there's no gray area you immediately know what to feel right there's no sort of need to kind of analyze and go through the decisions. Which parts do I like? Which parts don't I like? Because it's just that visceral reaction. Yeah. Well, for certain products, working with many nano influencers makes sense. Like if you sell a beauty product, like a moisturizer, then, you know, kind of all moisturizers are pretty much the same. So it's just about making sure a lot of people hear about yours. I guess I'm just thinking about making, right? It doesn't work in the same way. You couldn't arbitrarily find... 20 people with 5,000 followers to talk about Macon and have that succeed. Maybe you could, I don't know. Well, I just think that the reason it is optimal for agencies is because they have to spend less time vetting their influencers. It's much quicker and the relationships are easier to manage. And yes, a lot of people find out about Macon through word of mouth, but those kinds of relationships are really personal. The kind of way Macon gets talked about is definitely like one-to-one conversations. 
Mm-hmm. Did you see on Instagram a young woman by the handle of Aries C-A-R-I-E-E-E-E-C posted on her IG story about sending this email to her friend, putting her onto different high quality podcasts and articles oh, and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. She had a coffee meetup or she met this friend in person. I, I wound up messaging her. And then she was following up from that meetup with the email to send her the actual links. Her first things that she mentions is making it up. And that's how people hear about us. Word of mouth, yeah. Influencers are also word of mouth. But the kind of word of mouth that works really well for us is when it is in those one-on-one conversations in like small settings. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe there are ways that we could be more effective at greater scale, but this is the way we've seen it organically happen. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing is like, how do you expand on distribution to effectively hit people? So I I don't necessarily disagree with the strategy so much as that it's just another kind of big shift in the way the influencer economy is going to work. Yeah. I don't know either. Right. Like I think one thing that I've become more comfortable with is I, can look into a future, but I have no predictive ability to see it properly. (laughs) If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to our stories that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. If there's one thing you could do that would be really helpful is pick your favorite Making It Up episode and share it with a friend. It's interesting because this strategy began from an article I read about asking people to pick one thing and one thing only to do. But then it was further validated by the idea of choosing the best episode to send somebody as a way of curating and providing them with insight into what that podcast represents. Shout outs to Alan and Wilson, the podcast app for kind of putting us onto that and just validating the whole idea behind it. So yes, please pick and share. Yes, the idea is that it's episodic, the way people get put onto podcasts. So... We'd love it if you share a specific episode with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at macon.com and eugene at eugene at macon.com. You can also DM us on Instagram. We promise to read and respond. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.